Well, I hope you'll get a deep seat in the saddle, <clears throat> get your pen or pencils warmed up. There will be a lot of notes to take today, I hope, because we face a situation that is truly unparalleled in my lifetime, which is longer than most of yours. <laughs> and it is a situation we need to take advantage of. We at Apologia Church want to be individuals who are ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. Right now, we see, for example, Mormonism um, devolving. Just saw an article last night uh, demonstrating how deeply the woke disease has infected the leadership of the LDS Church. And they're taking positions and doing things and elevating people to positions of authority that... Man, when I first started talking to Mormons, it never would have crossed my mind that they would have ever done anything like this, but that's where we are. But right now, more relevant globally is the pontificate of Francis. Pope Francis has been Pope for a decade now, and as you know, he became Pope in an unusual fashion, specifically uh, the preceding pope resigned. It was the first time that happened in many, many centuries. And very early on, he started saying things that left a lot of people going, what's going on here? He would give interviews on the papal plane, and someone asked about a subject related to homosexuality. Who am I to judge? And all the rest of the world's going, we thought that was your job. <laughs> what's going on here? And the people that he has placed into positions of authority on various Vatican councils and uh, committees and things like that, it's, it's truly been a scandal to many believing Roman Catholics just how far to the left this man is. Now, it's not overly surprising to people who understand uh, what's called liberation theology, uh, the state of the Roman Catholic Church in South America. Uh, where he comes from, obviously, not overly shocking to those people, but he has been very busily making sure that the next pope after him will continue with his program of clearly moving the Roman Catholic Church in a very unusual direction. There are many Roman Catholics who are very upset about this. There are many who have said early on in his pontificate, I've been red-pilled. I've come to understand that all is not well in the Vatican. Well, what happens if you come to recognize? And listen to me here. There is no question, no one could possibly disagree with what I'm about to say. This current pope would have been burned at the stake as a heretic in the 16th century. No question about it. None. He's a Jesuit. The Jesuits would have burned him in the 16th century. There is no question of this. So what do you do with the claims of the Roman Catholic faith that this man is the infallible vicar of Christ? There are many Roman Catholics asking these questions, and we need to be the ones who are not only ready to explain biblically why there is no such thing as the office of the papacy. 
But more importantly, always our goal is to present the gospel that brings true peace. The gospel of Roman Catholicism does not bring peace. We want to be the ones to bring that message, but just like when we deal with the Mormons, we may have to deal with all sorts of other issues to get to the presentation of who God is, who Christ is, what salvation is to the, to the Mormon, and we have, may have to talk about the first vision and Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and Book of Abraham and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But those are always just detours, getting us back to where we need to go. The same thing is true here. We want to get to the gospel in speaking with Roman Catholics. And sometimes we have to deal with other issues. And right now, a gift has been given to us, in essence, in the person of Francis. The doors may be open for conversation. The first Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution, entitled Pastor Eternus, given April 24th, 1870. Vatican I, Vatican II is in the 60s, Vatican I is in 1870. What Vatican I is known for is defining the infallibility of the Pope. 1870. We therefore, for the preservation, safekeeping, and increase the Catholic flock, with the approval of the Sacred Council, do judge to be necessary to propose the belief and acceptance of all the faithful, in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, I will not have time to demonstrate that that is a lie, but I will say to you, if you this evening hear things and you go, I want to know more, I want to dig more deeply into this, many of you have Roman Catholic neighbors, friends, family members, things like that. We have been blessed over the years to engage in almost 40 moderated public debates with the leading Roman Catholic apologists on these subjects. Um, in 1993, when Pope John Paul II visited Denver, uh, I debated a, the first peace, ordained PCA minister to ever convert to Roman Catholicism, a man by the name of Jerry Matitix, a student of John Gerstner, well-known John Gerstner, who was a mentor at R.C. Sproul, uh, I debated him two nights, seven and a half hours, on the subject of the papacy. Much of what I'll have this evening was from that first debate at Denver Seminary. So you can go, you can listen, you can hear many of these quotes again. The nice thing is you can start and stop, get references, things like that at that particular point in time. Uh, we did about three and a half hours on the early church and the papacy, which I will not be able to cover in this sermon series, but that material is there. Church history is not friendly to the Roman Catholic cause. They like to say the exact opposite. That's not the case. And when we go toe-to-toe in debate, you can see how that works. So you can look those, uh, those debates up. But in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, which is a lie, the doctrine touching the institution, perpetuity, and nature of the sacred apostolic primacy goes on to say, we therefore teach and declare that according to the testimony of the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God was immediately and directly promised and given to blessed Peter the apostle by Christ the Lord. For it was to Simon alone above the other apostles 
to whom he had already said, Thou shalt be called Cephas, that the Lord, after the confession made by him, saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, addressed these solemn words, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood have not revealed it to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever thou shalt bind on earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. And it was upon Simon alone that Jesus, after his resurrection, bestowed the jurisdiction of chief pastor and ruler over all his fold in the words, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. At open variance with this clear doctrine of Holy Scripture, as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church, again, a statement of a simple fraudulent statement. No one who knows early church fathers could read those lines without stopping and choking. Simply not true. But as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church, are the perverse opinions of those who, while they distort the form of government established by Christ the Lord and his church, deny that Peter, in his single person, preferably to all the other apostles, whether taken separately or together, was endowed by Christ with a true and proper primacy of jurisdiction, or of those who assert that the same primacy was not bestowed immediately and directly upon blessed Peter himself, but upon the church and through the church on Peter as her minister. If anyone therefore shall say that blessed Peter the apostle was not appointed the prince of all the apostles and the visible head of the church militant, or at the same directly and immediately received from the same our Lord Jesus Christ a primacy of honor only and not of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be anathema, accursed. This is de fide, of faith. It is a dogma. It must, well, <laughs> until recently, must be believed truly with the heart to be a believing Roman Catholic. I'll be honest with you. I doubt Francis believes this. And I can guarantee you almost everyone teaching at Boston College and many other such places do not believe this as it was enunciated by these people. But there are still many Roman Catholics who do. This is the dogmatic teaching. Rome is changing. And you need to find out when you're talking with someone what they believe. The Roman Catholic writer Cardinal Gibbons wrote regarding the papacy, quote, the Catholic Church teaches that our Lord conferred on St. Peter the first place of honor and jurisdiction in the government of his whole church, and that same spiritual authority has always resided in the popes or bishops of Rome as being the successors of St. Peter. Consequently, to be true followers of Christ, all Christians, both among the clergy and laity, must be in communion with the See of Rome where Peter rules in the person of his successor. That's from his book, The Faith of Our Fathers, page 78. So, what do we need to understand? The Roman Catholic Church claims that Peter is placed in a position of primacy by the Lord Jesus himself. This isn't something that develops over time. This was done by Jesus. The primacy is one of honor, jurisdiction, and rulership. This primacy given to Peter is presented according to the dogmatic teachings of the Church of Rome in Matthew 16, 18 through 19, and in John 21, 15 through 17. 
According to Roman teaching, Peter is the rock of Matthew 16, that Christ, in conferring a primacy upon Peter, intends this to be understood to apply to Peter's successors as well, and that hence Christ is, in this passage, instituting the office of Pope for the Christian church. Rome further teaches that when Christ spoke to Peter and said, feed my sheep, he was, by so doing, setting Peter apart as the pastor of all Christians in a way different from all the other apostles. Thirdly, Peter is said to have been the bishop of Rome. Fourth, because of this, his supposed primacy is passed on to his successors, the bishops of Rome. And finally, number five, this viewpoint has supposedly been the ancient and constant faith of the Christian church. Suppose the churches always believe this to be true. Anyone who would express a different perspective is holding to perverse opinions and are, in fact, anathema. So, for the Roman Catholic claims to be true, this is what must be proven on their part. Can't just be assumed, must be proven on their part. Jesus is without question speaking to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. So important is Matthew 16, 19 to 20. I visited Rome once. I went in the Vatican, I looked up at the cupola up there, that, that huge dome, and around that in Latin are the words from Matthew chapter 16, in gold, not just gold covered, it's gold, folks. I can tell you where that gold came from, and it's a tragedy in and of itself, but that's how seriously they take this. And so they must prove that Jesus is without question speaking to Matthew, to Peter in Matthew 16, and is in so doing identifying him as the rock upon which the church is built. Secondly, that the words the Lord Jesus speaks establish Peter as the prince of the apostles, the very first pope, the head of the Christian church. Thirdly, that these words of Jesus necessarily indicate the creation of an office of pope replete with successors and associated powers. And finally, the Christian church has always held this to be her constant and unchanging faith. I submit to you that Rome has never come close to establishing these things and cannot do so. Again, we can't do church history. I want to. But church history, the early writers are clearly witnesses against everything that Rome teaches here. But we want to look at the New Testament today. We must note, by the way, that Rome cannot merely demonstrate that their position is probably true, or that it's likely to be true, but that it is true beyond question, because they are claiming absolute ultimate authority in spiritual matters over all believers in Jesus Christ. She claims infallible teaching authority. The papacy is not an issue upon which one can be neutral. Pope Boniface made this clear in the papal bull Unum Sanctum November 18, 1302. I know Boniface would have burned Francis. There's no question of that. None. That's what they have to deal with. But here is what Pope Boniface said in 1302. Consequently, we declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. You can't be much more clear than that. So, with that in mind, think with me. We don't have a lot of time. I have to move fast. 
Let's step back. Normally what happens in these situations is you end up having long, very often heated conversations with a Roman Catholic on Matthew 16 and on John 21 and Luke 22 and a couple other, just a couple other passages. Very rarely is what happens is that people step back and they simply look at the New Testament as a whole and go, do we see that the early church, as testified in the documents of the New Testament, was functioning under the idea of the supremacy of Peter, the bishop of Rome, and the concept of a papacy. Remember something. When people talk about women pastors, one of my first things I say is, where does the Bible give the requirements and qualifications of a woman pastor? Well, where does the Bible give the qualifications of a pope or a cardinal. We have the qualifications for a bishop, elder, it's the same thing. We have qualifications for deacons, a low office in the Roman Catholic uh, concept of things. But we have nothing, no one, no one thought it was important that we should know what a pope should be able to do. Well, the fact of the matter is, when you look at the New Testament, there is not only no evidence of the idea of a papacy, there is tremendous evidence against it. For example, in Matthew chapter 16, right after Jesus says these words, we'll get there, what happens? Jesus has to rebuke Peter. Peter does not understand why it is that Christ must die upon the cross. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Jesus' response to Peter shows that Peter was not thinking through his statements before making them. The same thing happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. I love it. Remember what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, Peter says, Master, it's, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. <laughs> I, I've often wondered, I think Luke was very kind and, and gentle uh, to report for us at that point, quote, he did not know what he was saying. <laughs> How would you like to have in the Bible recorded about you? He just didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> and that's not, the, uh, that, that's not the first time that Peter did that. Peter speaks often in the New Testament, but he often gets himself in trouble in the process. Now, Peter is very prominent in the gospel. He's more prominent than anyone else in the gospel narratives. His name appears before anyone else's. He was probably the oldest. That might be why that is. But he's very, very prominent. But to leap from prominence to primacy is wholly unwarranted. First, the Gospels themselves deny that any of the apostles were in a position of primacy. And secondly, the rest of the New Testament shows that Peter did not actually end up taking any supposed position of primacy. So think with me about Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. Now, I know I'm going fast. I know I'm going fast. You can, you can grab the video and slow it down if you need to, but we've got a lot to cover. Remember what happens as the disciples on the night of Jesus' betrayal are going to the Garden of Gethsemane. What are they arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? Um, who is going to have authority? Um, weren't all these guys there when Jesus gave Peter the authority in Matthew chapter 16? Somehow they didn't get that. That, that, that is the answer. 
And in fact, you have to wonder, they had just finished the Lord's Supper. And who was it that was leaning back on Jesus' chest? It wasn't Peter. It was John. So you think maybe there was a little bit of dissension? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They don't understand that there is an office of the papacy that has already been established by the Lord Jesus in any way, shape, or form. Now, the second reason that leaping from Peter's prominence in the gospel accounts the Roman concept of primacy is that the rest of the New Testament is very clear. I mean, think about it. It hardly needs to be said that nowhere in the epistles of Paul or John or James or Jude do we find them ever referring their readers to Peter as a pope, to Peter as the shepherd of all the sheep. At no time do they give any indication whatsoever of the existence of an institution known as a papacy. Not once. Peter himself, in his own letters, fails to give us the slightest hint that he views himself as a pope. Now, what's really ironic to me is that I can pretty much guarantee you that none of the people that Pope Francis has placed on the papal biblical commission believe that Peter wrote any of the epistles in the New Testament himself. I'll bet you they don't even believe. I believe they, they would probably take the standard position that these are late first century, early second century forgeries. It's a different thing dealing with Roman Catholicism today. But for those that believe that Peter did write those letters, nothing in those letters gives any indication that he views himself as the head of the church on earth. In his first epistle, he says the following, quote, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. Peter doesn't speak as a pope, but as a fellow elder, a fellow servant. He does not speak as a chief pastor, but a fellow pastor. There is no reference to Rome, the papacy, or any other element of Roman Catholic claims in this epistle. The second epistle, it's also the same. You would think here at the end of his life, this is where he would say, follow my successor, the Bishop of Rome. Problem is, one thing that, again, I, I keep bringing church history things in here, but one of the things that has become more and more clear in the scholarship over the past number of years, even since uh, I first wrote these, these notes for that to debate in 1993, um, there was no singular bishop of Rome until about 140 AD. Rome had a plurality of elders, as the New Testament teaches you should. That's seen in the, the epistles of Ignatius. There's other evidence of that. Somehow, for over a hundred years after the resurrection, the church at Rome didn't think they needed a single bishop. Huh. They had never heard of the papacy, had they? No, they hadn't. That's true. So, in, remember in 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul writes, right at the end of his life, that no one stood with him at his defense. Where was Paul at the time? Rome. If Peter was the bishop of Rome, then Peter is accused by Paul 
of abandoning him when he stood before Caesar. Hmm. That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. But we don't actually have any evidence of Peter being there outside of later tradition. Only later tradition places him there and makes him the first bishop of Rome. In Paul, in Paul's epistles, for example, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, that he is in no way inferior to the very chiefest of apostles. Now, maybe he was talking about the super apostles there. But he writes to the Corinthians that God had placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Uh, Paul, no, isn't it first the Pope? No, he doesn't say anything like that. That's not the biblical order. It hardly needs to be said that in all of Paul's letters in which we find discussions of apostles, bishops, deacons, all sorts of other positions of ministry in the church, never a word is said about the most important office of all, the supposed office of Pope. And the reason's plain, no such office existed. Now let me stop for just a moment before I continue on with Paul. This is so plain in the New Testament and in church history that in the... uh, Late 1800s, a theory was developed. John Henry Cardinal Newman, a convert to Roman Catholicism, developed what's called the development hypothesis. And he, knowing church history, knew there was no papacy in the early church, knew that these things developed over time. And so he came up with the theory that Christian truth is like an acorn. And then it drops into the ground and then... Over the years, a mighty oak tree can grow out of this seed, but it has to develop over time. Now, this was an abandonment of what Rome had been doing up to that point in time, saying, Jesus taught this from the beginning. He established Peter as the Pope. Everybody believed this. And Newman just realized, that's just not true. You can't, you, you can't defend that. And so today, if you go to, the, to ASU, and I'm not certain of this, but is there a Newman Center at, at ASU? Thank you very much. I knew, I knew my bro back there would be the one to let me know. Uh, most major universities have a Newman Center, and they're named after John Henry Cardinal Newman. In fact, I did a debate with a very sharp Roman Catholic apologist on the Marian dogmas uh, at one of the churches where Newman uh, ministered long, long ago. And so that's where the apologists are, and they will use that argumentation of the development theory. But you need to understand, that's an abandonment of what Vatican I said. That was an, that's an abandonment of what the, the Roman Catholic Church was saying from the Council of Trent onward. When, when John Paul II died, I remember watching Fox News. And all these Catholic apologists, some of whom I had debated, are getting their five minutes of fame, getting to talk about this, this, uh, the death of the Pope. And what are they saying over and over and over again? The constant faith of the Catholic Church for 2,000 years. No one who reads church history, no one who reads the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church can ever honestly make that claim. The changes and evolution were clear when John Paul II was Pope, and now with Francis, they are now lit up with neon lights. And yet that is the teaching 
of the church. Remember what happens in Galatians chapter 2. Paul speaks to us about the encounter he has with Peter and the fact that he has to rebuke Peter because Peter was taken away in the hypocrisy of the Judaizers. And it's Paul who recognizes, look, if Peter withdraws from table fellowship with the Gentiles in Antioch, the result is going to be two different Christian churches, a Jewish Christian church and a Gentile Christian church. And that will be the end of the Christian church. And so he rebukes Peter publicly. He doesn't believe that Peter is the infallible head of the church. Remember in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, uh, uh, Paul says, beside those things that are without, that which cometh on me daily, the care of all the churches. Oh, Paul, you don't have to worry about that. That's not your job. That's Peter's job. He never even thought of such an idea. That's not what he understood in any way, shape, or form. Epistle after epistle can pass in review without the slightest evidence of Petrine primacy. Even the pastoral epistles, with their extensive instruction on ecclesiastical matters, speak not a word about the papacy or Peter or anything even remotely similar to Roman claims. But let's think about the book that gives us the most evidence, Acts. Think about it. In Acts 8.14, when there is need to investigate what has happened in Samaria, do we find Peter holding forth as a pope, directing the actions of the church? No, instead, quote, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, end quote. Here, Peter does not function as a pope, but as one of the apostles who is sent to investigate the situation. Remember in Acts chapter 11, Peter is called to answer for his actions in going to Cornelius' house. Does he give evidence of papal prerogatives in his response? Does he answer as Innocent III would have answered or Alexander VI? Hardly. There is no mention of his supposed position as pope. Instead, rather than pleading his position as vicar of Christ, Peter relates the supernatural vision and direction that he had been given to proclaim the gospel message to the Gentiles. This no more makes Peter a pope than Paul's receipt of a guiding vision in Acts 16 makes him a pope. Then you have an important section, Acts chapter 15, the supposed Jerusalem council. And here, it's very, very interesting. I just have to be very brief. There's so much that we can say about this. I did do uh, a debate with Robertson Genis on the bodily assumption of Mary, which ended up focusing very much on Acts chapter 15. It was in New Mexico. don't remember what year it was. You can look it up uh, if you want to dig a little bit more deeper. But a lot of people will point to Acts chapter 15 and say, say, Peter stands up and he says these things and that shows he's Pope. Here's the problem. In verse 6, we read, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. It is not said the Pope and the apostles and the elders met. Peter is plainly considered an apostle just as all the rest. The council is not under the direction of Peter. It is plainly under the direction of James, who is the bishop of Jerusalem. Peter addresses the group not as a pope, but as an apostle used by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He concludes his speech as follows, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. We note that the deliberations do not end with Peter's speech. Say that right. 
Instead, we read in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among Gentiles through them. Paul and Barnabas addressed the group and confirmed Peter's opinion by relating God's wondrous work in their own ministries. At this point, James speaks up and using the imperative mode, the mode of command, commands the assembly to listen to his words. He confirms Peter's words, the citation of scripture, and upon doing this gives his judgment in verse 19. Here we have the conclusion of the affair. The letter is written at James's suggestion, but again in the name not of Peter the Pope, but of the apostles and elders, no popes seemingly being available. The words of Peter in Acts 15.11 give us our final look at Peter in Acts. From this point on, no mention is made of him. He who is allegedly the very head of the church universal, the founder of the church at Rome. Even when Paul arrives in Rome at the end of the book, Peter is nowhere to be found. Acts is not a friendly book to the concept of the papacy. And so, remember, the defender of the papacy must prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Matthew 16 and John 21 establish unequivocally Petrine primacy and succession in the office of the Pope because they've got nothing else in Scripture. They've got nothing else in Scripture. So, let's look at them. John 21. And believe me, we have to have at least a few minutes to do Matthew 16. So, as you can tell, I'm going as quickly as I possibly can. Matthew chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, I am going to give you the interpretation of one of the early church fathers. Because remember, I, I read to you the claim, the, the church has always believed what we're proclaiming in Vatican I. That's just simply a bold face lie. Cyril of Alexandria, who, by the way, was, is not my favorite early church father, but he commented on this passage and said the following words. If anyone asks for what cause, he asked Simon only, though the other disciples were present. And what he means by feed my lambs and the like, we answer that St. Peter with the other disciples had already been chosen to the apostleship, but because, because meanwhile, Peter had fallen. For under great fear, he had thrice denied the Lord. He now heals him that was sick and exacts a threefold confession in place of his triple denial, contrasting the former with the latter and compensating the fault with the correction. That's what Cyril said. Here we have the gracious Lord restoring the apostle who, in his brash impetuosity, 
had promised to follow him even to death, and yet had denied him three times. The threefold question of Peter, followed by the command to feed or shepherd Christ's sheep, is restorative in nature. Nothing in the passage would even begin to suggest to us that this means that the other apostles were not likewise commissioned to feed and pastor Christ's flock on an equal basis with Simon Peter. There is no indication that only Peter is told to shepherd God's flock, nor that all others who shepherd the flock do so derivatively from Peter's supremacy and authority. Indeed, if such were the case, Paul seems to have been ignorant of this. For he instructed the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.28 to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Paul does not say, as Peter is the chief shepherd, you act as under-shepherds of the flock of God. No. The only way that such understanding can be found is if we take a much later development and read it back into these texts, as our Roman Catholic friends are forced to do. This passage in no way sets Peter apart as the prince of the apostles, Instead, it shows that he was in need of special pastoral care on the part of Christ. I can fully understand why, after those denials, why Peter would think, after the resurrection, I will never be able to be a leader. I will never be able to be one to feed Christ's sheep. I denied him. Jesus ministers to him and reestablishes him. That doesn't make him a pope. In Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Again, we see that Peter's denial of the Lord is in sight. The Lord warns Peter specifically. He is in danger. Yet Peter replies rashly in verse 33. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. To which the Lord replies that Peter will, in fact, deny him three times. Roman Catholics have cited this passage as pointing out, yet once again, the preeminence of Peter. And some have even gone so far as to say that the Lord's prayer for Peter's faith extends to Peter's successors in the bishops of Rome. Yet, if there is any Petrine primacy here, it is Petrine primacy in denial of Christ, not being the vicar of Christ. This passage, like John 21 shows us that Peter was more in need of pastoral care by the Lord due to his impetuosity, nothing more. The Lord's prayer was fulfilled for even having denied Christ, Peter, unlike Judas, went out and wept bitterly. But his faith did not fail completely, and he was restored, humbled, but wiser. To take this as indicating Petrine primacy, however, is to go far beyond anything the text says. Now, Much more could be said about that. Much could be said about how the early church interpreted these passages and how they did not interpret them the way that Rome interprets them today, that Rome's interpretation is novel and new, that all of its claims otherwise are simply lies, and that's why many people who read the early church are surprised by these things. But the key text, we're down to only one. There is only one. The key text is Matthew chapter 16. Let's look at it. 
But what about you? Verse 15. What about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, son and son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you, it is singular, you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, no one's going to deny that Matthew 16 is a singularly important passage. Here the Lord Jesus leads his disciples to a confession of faith in himself. The Father from heaven reveals the true nature of his Son, Jesus the Messiah. It's a pivotal passage in Matthew's Gospel. Before we can discuss this passage, very briefly, much can be said. I'm going to do this very, very briefly. You need to understand that modern Roman Catholic scholarship and apologetics asserts that the original of these words was in Aramaic. And therefore, you can have kepha for Cephas, and you, you build this whole case based upon the Aramaic language. Well, here's the problem. We don't have an Aramaic original. The gospel that Rome claimed, Rome claims authority to canonize scripture, and the gospel that was canonized was Greek, not Aramaic. And so all the speculation that they put into what the Aramaic would have been, and there are entire scholarly works that suggest different terms in the Aramaic. One, Chris Karagunis' work from back in the 90s, suggested uh, that, that Minra should have been the term there and, and not Cephas, and, and it, it destroys all of the, the parallelism that they bring up, so on and so forth. It is amazing to me that if this is the key text, that Rome literally has to say, we need to read it in a language other than it was written by Matthew and in a form we've never seen. That is amazing. It truly, truly is amazing. But we have to go past that. We don't have time to, to deal with that. The central theme of this passage is the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Any interpretation that takes the focus off of Jesus as Messiah and puts it on Peter is completely missing the point. Jesus questions the disciples about the opinions of the multitudes and even their own understanding are all directed toward his own purpose, his own identity. When Peter speaks up and confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is confessing the faith of all the disciples, not merely himself. He is speaking for them all as he so often does. Jesus' pronouncement of blessing upon Peter is not due to any inherent goodness in Peter, but is due to Peter's being the recipient of a great blessing from the Father. The Father has revealed to Peter the true identity of Jesus Christ. Now, the other apostles aren't sitting there going, he's the Messiah? We never knew. We can hardly think that they all sat there amazed at Peter's words, never having even thought that Jesus was the Messiah. The point of Jesus' words is that it requires the work of the Father to reveal the Son. 
This same theme is struck in John chapter 6, where no man can come to the Son unless drawn by the Father. In that same context, when all the disciples turned away from Jesus, except for the twelve, it was Peter who spoke for the disciples, again saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God, John chapter 6, verses 68 through 69. The subject of the passage remains the identity of Christ, found the confession of Peter. When the Lord says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, the focus does not change. Jesus is not here speaking of the identity of Peter. He is still talking about himself and his church. This is plainly seen by continuing on through verse 20, where we read, Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah, the Christ. Some modern scholars, having missed the fact the focus remains on Christ all the way through, are so puzzled by this passage, they suggest that it's not original. But that conjecture is not necessary. The rock of which the Lord speaks is the common confession made by all who are part of the church. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is seen, I believe, in the fact that while the Lord is addressing Peter directly, he changes from direct address to the third person, this rock, when speaking of Peter's confession. He does not say, upon you, Peter, I will build my church. Instead, you have a clear distinction between Peter the Petros, and the third person Petra, the confession of faith on pit upon which the church is built. Now, by the way, there were many in the early church, despite Vatican I, who understood it in exactly that same way. This statement is followed by the promise to, at some time in the future, it's in the future tense, at some time, it does not say, I am giving you, Peter, alone the keys. The statement is followed by the promise to, at some time in the future, give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. So what he binds on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever he looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. I emphasize this as a promise. The verb is future tense. Yet, when we see this authority given in Matthew 18, 18, so two chapters later, Matthew 18, 18, it is given not to Peter alone, or even primarily, but to all the apostles. And that using the exact same language, word for word, regarding binding and loosing. So listen to me. If someone wishes to say that Peter receives the keys in distinction from the other apostles, and I just remind you, that's exactly what Vatican I said. That's a dogmatic teaching. You deny that and you are accursed by Rome. But if someone wishes to say that Peter receives the keys in distinction from the other apostles as their superior, they're also forced to admit that the giving of these keys is never recorded for us anywhere in Scripture. A strange thing indeed for something supposedly so foundational to the constitution of the church. So, you either have to say, Peter received the keys in Matthew 18, 18, but that means he received it right along with the other apostles and is not their superior. Or he received it some other time, maybe before Matthew 18, but no one thought it important enough to actually record it. Okay? Now, 
you may look at that text, and a Roman Catholic will look at that and say, well, I just don't agree. Okay, but here's the problem. You can't demonstrate that it's impossible that the reading I just gave is what Matthew intended us to understand when he wrote the gospel. It's contextual. It happens to be in perfect harmony with the rest of what the New Testament says, what we've already seen in looking at when the New Testament starts talking about offices in the church, saying that there's nothing about a papacy or a pope or anything like that at all. It's perfectly consistent with everything else we've seen in the New Testament. But there's a problem. If that is an appropriate and proper reading, and by the way, let me just, I remember so clearly, uh, it was, I think it was right before I did a debate on uh, papal infallibility with Tim Staples in Fullerton. I remember for some reason I was driving on the freeways in Los Angeles and I was listening to either a live broadcast or a, back then probably a cassette tape of Tim Staples who's a convert to Roman Catholicism, an apologist for Catholic answers, uh, talking about the fact that there are very, very few texts of Scripture that have been infallibly interpreted by the Roman Catholic Church. And even more so that even Matthew chapter 16, this text, while it has been infallibly interpreted, that doesn't mean that there could be other, that there could not be other interpretations that would be equally valid. Think about that. That doesn't make a lick of sense. Yes, we have infallibly interpreted what Matthew intended to communicate, but, you know, he might, he might interpret it some other ways, which could likewise be um, valid as well. What? That's impossible. Rome likes to say, you need us to interpret Scripture, and then they just refuse to do it. And right now, I think there's a lot of Roman Catholics going, and we'd really hope that, well, Francis is Pope, that he won't, <laughs> because who knows what he's going to come up with. I mean, what he just did with fiducia, um, um, last word misses my mind, with this statement that was just put out by the man who is the head of what used to be the Inquisition. This statement about the blessing of people in irregular relationships that opens the door, just cracks it open a little bit for the, for the blessing of same-sex unions. All of Africa, all the Roman Catholic bishops in Africa said, nope, ain't doing it. Supplicants, fiducia supplicants. Uh, they've all said, nope, we're not doing it. Many other people said the same thing. There is scriptural interpretation in there. Isn't he the one to give us the final word? <laughs> Most people are going, let's hope not. Let's hope not. It's a real mess. When you deny sola scriptura, you get yourself into a real mess because you no longer have an objective, unchanging standard to appeal to. The teaching of the bishops of Rome has changed over time. There is no question of that. And right now, it's changing real fast and could change even faster. And there are many Roman Catholics who recognize this by God's grace. So 
if there is a meaningful, consistent, contextual interpretation of Matthew 16 that does not make Peter a pope, that this rock is the confession. That was Augustine's view. There were lots of people in your church who took that view. In fact, the first people that took the other view were the bishops of Rome. Oh, shocking. Really? Yeah. If you can present a meaningful interpretation of Matthew chapter 16, the Roman position fails. It fails. The very existence of viable, logical, rational, reasonable alternatives to the Roman interpretation makes the Roman interpretation just one of many, and such is not supportive of the structure built upon the passage by Rome. This is their last place. This is it. They cannot simply provide us with a a possible alternative. Well, it might mean this. Instead, they must be able to prove beyond all question the impossibility of all other interpretations. And yet they cannot do it, and while not even try to do it. In fact, it's interesting that about a year and a half ago, one of the gentlemen that I will be debating in just a few weeks in Houston put out a video where he basically said, you know, we we shouldn't really be doing debates on other topics. The only, the only topic really worthwhile debating is sola scriptura. Because if the church is right, and if the church is the final authority, all those other topics, they just don't really matter. The church has already said, you know, debate purgatory, well, the church has said. Debate the Marian dogmas, well, the church has already said. And so they understand that that is central to their their assertions. The problem is, while they want to debate, it's interesting, he offered to debate me on apostolic succession, not on whether Francis is the infallible vicar of Christ. See, apostolic succession is a nice nebulous idea, and you don't have to get specific about it. But I can't find any of these guys that want to defend the leading guys, the guys who published books, things like that. I can't find any of them that want to touch Francis with a 10-foot pole. They don't want to do it. And I understand why. And what's going to be really, really fascinating is who's the next pope going to be? Who's the next pope going to be? He's, Francis is already changing the mechanism by which that's going to take place. He's stacking the deck. He's stacked the cardinals. He's forced the conservatives to retire. In fact, it's fascinating. I, uh, just yesterday, was uh, talking to the head, the the president of a seminary um, outside of Tyler, Texas. And I'm going to be in that area for two days on my way back to Houston after three debates and teaching at the seminary. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to be in that area, Tom Buck's in that area, so I stop and, and uh, I will have to, to say publicly, Tom Buck is a dear friend. He really is. A wonderful, wonderful pastor there uh, in Lindale, Texas. But anyways, he put me in touch with this president of a seminary in the area and he was going, well, what, what topics do you think would, 
would work to, to where we could draw a good crowd to hear you speak. And I suggested a few things. One of the things I suggested was, well, you know, with Pope Francis right now, but this is Texas. You know, Louisiana, I get it. Lots of Roman Catholic Cajuns, you bet. But East Texas? The president of the seminary said, well, remember something. Bishop Strickland. Strickland was a very conservative, old-style Roman Catholic. Bishop of Tyler, Texas, which is a city just south of Lindale. For those of you who are interested, uh, Keith Green and his two kids are buried right between those two cities. If you know Keith Green, what a, what a tremendous talent he was and what a witness he was to the grace of Christ. Anyway, Pope Francis removed Bishop Strickland there in Tyler. And that has gotten, from what this gentleman's saying, and it's a very conservative uh, seminary, uh, he says, that's all the talk right now. I think we need to talk about Roman Catholicism. He agreed with me. This is unusual. But the fact that the Pope removed that bishop right there in East Texas would focus upon him has gotten a lot of people talking about this. And for you and I, I don't need to tell Apologia that we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. And let me just ask, let me just, this, this is an easy one. How many of you have Roman Catholic relatives or coworkers or neighbors? Okay, that's 90%. That's 90%. So we all know Roman Catholics. You may be the most opportune person, the person the Lord in his providence has put in that place. But the problem is, just as when you talk about Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam or whatever it else it might be, the opportunity can arise and we hesitate because we don't feel prepared. Now, I don't believe that one hour of running through these texts is a full preparation. But what it does is it gives you a foundation. It gives you something you can go back and listen to. And it gives you an idea, okay, these, these are the issues that I'd be dealing with. And so our desire in this series, however long it takes, because I leave the 9th of February and I'm gone for uh, well over a month, um, this series is intended to equip you and to encourage you to be one who brings the gospel of grace. Now, I know we're going to be talking about other issues, but like I said, those are, the, those are the speed bump issues. Those are the things that can get in the way that you have to deal with. Mary, wow. Mary can be a huge barrier, but Mary is also one of the clearest examples of the utterly unbiblical, non-apostolic nature of the de fide dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. And so to understand them, most Roman Catholics you'll talk to do not understand them. I've talked to Roman Catholics who thought the Immaculate Conception had to do with the virgin birth and it's about Jesus. Nope. Nope, it's about Mary. They don't understand. We need to understand. We need to be the ones to build the bridges. And so when it comes to Peter and the papacy, what you need to understand today 
Like I said, what, was, what did I say at the beginning? The bishop of Rome today would have been burned at the stake in the 16th century as a heretic. What does that mean? And when we look at the New Testament, we see there is no evidence whatsoever that the apostles believed that the church was to be headed up by the bishop of Rome, who were the successors of Peter. Church history says that's not how it worked. The New Testament says that's not how it worked. There's so much more I could say, believe me, we could do hours on this topic. I hope I have given you some interest to dive into the information that is available. It is there. It won't be at your local Christian bookstore, unfortunately. Most of the, the real good books on this subject, not going to find them there, but they are there. And we can direct you to those if you especially want to get more into that particular topic. Let's pray together. Father, this time we have taken in your presence to speak about error and falsehood because we want to be used of you. We want to be used of you as witnesses. We want to be used of you to bring light and understanding. And right now, Lord, things are happening in this world. Things are happening in the Roman Catholic Church that are opening up opportunities. Make us to be a bold people. Make us to be instruments of peace and grace in your hands to bring this message to the Roman Catholic people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.